0: You know, we're seeing Bitcoin monetize in real time. What gold went through over thousands of years, you know, Bitcoin's going through in, in like, you know, so far like 12 years. And so it went from zero to a trillion market cap. It's, it's trying to find this total adjustable market.
1: Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom. How are you all doing? Bitcoin is flirting with $40,000 again. Interesting times. It does feel like the bull market is warming up again. I think, uh, I think it looks good. you feeling good about it all? I think it's going to be interesting in a few months anyway. Big end of the year would be very, very cool. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I have an interview with Lynn Alden, where we are critiquing my good friend Nassim Taleb's Bitcoin black paper. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. And First up today, we have Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for Bitcoin. Now, long-term listeners know I'm always whinging about UX, so when Exodus reached out to me and said, Pete, we want to sponsor the podcast, I was like, okay, I'll think about it, let me have a play with it. So I did. I had a play with Exodus Wallet, and I love what they've done with this, so that's why I'm happy to recommend it to my friends and my family, and of course you lot. Now Exodus Desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application and with their mobile wallet you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address knowing that Exodus automatically checks addresses for errors. If you do want to check it out yourself please head over to Exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple App Stores. Also, let's talk about Casa, the safest way for you to store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps and phishing attacks, there are just too many ways for your Bitcoin to be lost or stolen. But with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with their multi-sig wallets, you get to take custody of your Bitcoin, but you only move it by signing transactions from multiple wallets. And with those wallets, you distribute them into different locations, and that protects you from a range of mistakes, errors and vulnerabilities. Now listen, I've been a customer for about a year now. I've been a Casa multi-sig wallet user. And if you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. You can hit me up in my Twitter DMs or drop me an email. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at Keys.Casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And next up, we have sportsbet.io, the best place for online gaming, because you know what? They accept Bitcoin. Now, with the Olympics on, sportsbet.io has you covered. They have prepared an amazing calendar for you, where you get to complete daily missions and get daily rewards in return. All you have to do is complete the mission of the day, and once done, you'll get the reward the next day. So hurry up, because this is only running until August the 8th, and you get to enjoy the Olympics even more with sportsbet.io. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T I-O forward slash promotions. Okay, so on to the show today, and we have the amazing Lynn back. And for today's show, we have planned something a little bit different. We're not doing a macro review of the month. We're not talking about where Bitcoin's at. We decided to go through Nasim Taleb's recent critical paper on Bitcoin. Now, when Nassim Taleb initially dropped the paper, it was clear that there were some pretty obvious mistakes. And I was keen to push back on it. I reached out to him on Twitter and I was like, hey, buddy, let's discuss this. But unfortunately, he wasn't very interested and blocked me. So in my last interview with the Lynn, I said to her, come on, let's go through this. And she agreed. So we've done it. We've gone through the paper point by point to try and figure out what he's got right and where he's completely missed the mark. So hopefully, well, I actually hope he listens to it as well, because if he does listen and he wants to engage on this, would be more than happy to record a show and go through these things that he doesn't understand. May you be explaining the Lightning Network to him. Or maybe we'll just get an anti-Lightning Network paper. Who knows? Anyway, if you want to reach out, if you've got any questions about this, you can jump into my Telegram channel or you can email me on hello bitcoin did.com. Okay, on to the interview. Hi, Lynn. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Uh, this is probably the interview we're doing that I've been most excited about. Uh, I always learn a lot from you. But to take to work... Nassim Taleb's Bitcoin Black Paper, I think, is quite an interesting thing. And and interestingly, I did skim it previously and just dismissed it. And then I read it again and saw some of the criticisms. And also actually, I think he makes some good points in there that also should be discussed. I don't think we should be entirely dismissive. I don't know if you found something similar.
0: I've always found that, you know, in most criticisms, like there's there's kind of a big range of criticisms, right? So I mean, literally, as someone who was was more skeptical on Bitcoin back in 2017, there there are certainly a number of of criticisms that I can appreciate when you're kind of working out the probabilities of how successful the protocol will be. Uh, And so primarily it comes down to, you know, a lot of the arguments in this particular paper are kind of like almost like you took a snapshot from several years ago and kind of teleported Mm -hmm. them to today. So it's kind of like a, a mental model of Bitcoin that's pretty old, which is why I actually did find a lot of it dismissible. Um, but there, I mean, there are obviously some, some you know, more reasonable arguments within the paper overall.
1: Yeah, so I've I read quite a few of the uh, criticisms that were put out there on Twitter, and Nick Carter, thankfully, collected a lot of them together. Uh, but one specifically said most of these arguments have been dealt with on Bitcoin talk years ago. Um, I think... If I was to criticize Taleb in doing this, um, firstly I'm glad he actually did it now because for a couple of reasons, it just shows that um, he he doesn't really understand Bitcoin correctly. Uh, I'm also glad he did it because it raised some things that I've not thought about and and reinforced my position that actually we shouldn't just dismiss things; we sh- we should review them. Uh, but lastly, the 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 other reason I'm I'm uh, really glad he did it is because I think. It was an opportunity to, well, I tell you what, my main criticism of him is that it feels like a paper that he's written because he's angry and he wants to find a fault with Bitcoin. And it's not particularly balanced. Um, I think there's plenty of places where he could have been balanced and had a fair discussion, pros and cons, but actually it felt like he wanted to, uh, he felt like, and I think it's because he's got into battles with Bitcoiners, it felt like he wanted to attack Bitcoin. And I, you know, that's fine, but if you're going to do a black paper against Bitcoin and not once mention the Lightning Network, um, you kind of destroy your credibility with the criticism.
0: That, that's unfortunately how I saw it too, but especially when I got to that part. Uh, like that, that kind of the paragraph that talks about its scaling mechanism and then the fact that Lightning wasn't mentioned once. I've actually seen this a couple of times with, you know, say, Goldman Sachs had a big, like, you know, 50-page research paper out. is far longer than this one. They got into altcoins and things like that. And the whole argument, they started out kind of dismissing Bitcoin as too slow and then moved into altcoins. But if you actually just do a control f there's no – they didn't mention Lightning in it. And you can yeah. kind of look around and see they didn't they, – so the way I interpret it overall is that, you know, Lightning is, you know, basically about something like three and a half years old on the mainnet, plus you know a couple years before then of planning, uh, and so it's really where Bitcoin was in like 2012. Where mm-hmm. some people might have heard of it, like most people have heard the word Lightning, but they might not know why it's important, what it is. They might not realize that you know it's it's actually starting to kind of hit critical mass of liquidity and usability. Uh, and so it doesn't seem like we're, we're, I think we're still really early in that aspect. Mm. And that's actually one of the most, in my view, bullish parts about the paper. Ironically, I was like, if, 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 you know, some of Bitcoin's critics are not yet realizing that, that's a source of alpha. That's like information asymmetry. If people, because it's what it'd be one thing to say, here's why XYZ, why I think the lightning solution is a, a poor scaling mechanism, right? And then you have, mm. but the, the, they don't even mention it while your paper has a large kind of aspect dedicated to Bitcoin as a currency, shows just, I mean, that's that's a that's a critical flaw of the paper and kind of the whole bearish thesis, like at least half of it just kind of becomes irrelevant once you realize that wasn't even mentioned.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because there's a few people like him now. Uh, Peter Schiff, we know. There he is up there. Um, Nouriel Roubini, uh Steve Hankey. Hankey's a really interesting one as well. I think that's how you his, uh, pronounce his name. In that... I find his Twitter really interesting because a lot of his tweets uh, are very pro-Bitcoin without talking about Bitcoin. Um, he reports on or talks a lot about uh, certain economic situations in other countries or certain issues where Bitcoin is certainly something that can help people. Uh, yeah, he seems to be very anti-Bitcoin. So I find his interesting. But what I also find interesting about these more kind of academic types is that once they take a the position, they're not willing to they're not willing to change. They're not willing to hear constructive arguments. Whereas you compare to someone like Ray Dalio, somebody said, I think it was Greg Foss said it to me. Um, he has changed position, and I think it's down to the incentive model. Like an academic, doesn't they're not paid to to change their mind really. Whereas someone like Ray Dalio is an investor, so he has to he has to take a different position if 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 the game's changed for him. So I find it really interesting that these people become so. It's almost like anti Bitcoin, which destroys their arguments. It's, it's less balanced. Anyway, I could talk about that for ages, but I did pick out a quote which was really good from Alan Farrington. Have you? I don't know if you've read his Bitcoin is for Fox's paper.
0: I don't believe I have, no.
1: I will send you it afterwards because it's fantastic. Um, so he put, uh, Bitcoin is new in just about every conceivable way. While the heuristics are highly conservative in the regular sense rather than the political... They ensure certain power structures are conserved. Bitcoin is targeting exactly this power for controlled demolition. So it makes kind of a perverse rational sense for them to dismiss it or even in understanding it. And that was that was uh, I only read that this morning. But that was really interesting because one of the things that was in my mind, Lynn, and I'd love to get your perspective on this, is that a lot of time people compare Bitcoin to other things. They compare it to gold or they'll compare it to uh, traditional fiat. But also, in some ways, it's something that's completely new, because it can be one or it can be the other, and it is a technology. So sometimes when we compare it to other assets or forms of money, I, I, I sometimes think we do Bitcoin a disservice, because perhaps Bitcoin is something new. It's the evolution of money, is that it is this new thing that operates in a different way. Have I explained myself well?
0: No, yeah, I think so. It draws pieces from other things, and so analogies mm. can kind of you know describe how part of it makes sense right but there's no one analogy that it the entire thing i've also noticed lately on wall street uh they're kind of going through the whole block size work question again like several mm-hmm. years after the developers and, and went through it uh because you know wall street doesn't kind of intrinsically care about decentralization so when they see these protocols they kind of look and think oh which one has the highest transaction per second which one enables the most features which one does this and then they kind of tune out which one is actually decentralized, which one can you verify the entire money supply with on a laptop. Uh, and so it's interesting how people who they have a certain perspective and they don't realize what makes something kind of powerful if if that attribute is not valuable to them uh, to begin with.
1: Yeah. Well, listen, we, we don't really need to cover the introduction or abstract too much um, because it's really covered throughout the paper. I think there's three primary sections, and I will be referring to my notes a lot here. So this might be a little disjointed. So apologies to the listeners. Um but let's start with the let's start with the blockchain. Um so I will sometimes pull out some of his quotes as we do this and then maybe talk about this. But I'm going to start with this. So where he said the proof of work method has an adjustable degree of difficulty based on the speed of block which blocks which aims in theory to keep the Incentive structure sufficiently high for miners to keep operating the system. Such adjustments lead to, and these are, these are the two key points from this, to an exponential increase in computer power requirements and making the time right in onerous energy demands on the system, energy which can be used to, for alternatives such as computational and scientific uses. So I can, firstly, I completely dismiss the moral case. I don't think it's relevant to the paper if you're discussing whether Bitcoin is you know, good money, whether it succeeded or failed. I don't think the moral argument about energy is relevant, so I've completely discarded that. Um, but one thing I did think was interesting is like he he understands proof of work. He clearly understands uh, the um, difficulty adjustment, but I don't think I don't think he fully understands why it's there. I think he understands why it works, but as I understand it, the difficulty adjustment is there for long term term stability. Right now we're still in speculation phase. We're still very early. The world is pricing Bitcoin in. But long term, as Bitcoin as a Bitcoin price stabilizes, my expectation or my understanding is that uh, so will the difficulty adjustment wouldn't wouldn't change as much. And therefore, we won't this won't lead to exponential increases in demand for energy.
0: Yeah, this is a common thing that I see when people discuss Bitcoin's energy usage, is that um, I think a lot of them haven't sat down and actually kind of worked the math through the scaling of how it works, uh, because just because it has gone up exponentially in terms of energy use uh, doesn't mean that uh, it will. Uh, and in fact, it's you know mathematically impossible to really use more energy than the utility is providing. And so yeah, mm-hmm. going back to the moral case for a second, basically you know Bitcoin uses like 0.1 percent of global energy at its peak. Right now, it's even less than that. Uh, and you know it's one of those things where. This whole kind of exercise is letting the market determine what it thinks is appropriate electricity usage and energy usage. Uh, whereas, you know, you might not have the most accurate way to, to think about who should use energy. I I certainly don't have the most accurate way. Taleb doesn't. And so this is our way of letting the market determine what it thinks is a proper use of electricity. But one thing worth pointing out is that if you if you look at Bitcoin's, uh, you know, uh, basically minor revenue, so how much how much uh, money goes to essentially security, right? Uh, and not all of that's energy. A big chunk of that ends up being spent in energy, but not all of it. Uh, you know, th- like back in 2011, for example, 46% of the market cap went towards that, right? Because of course, back then it was a highly inflationary protocol. Uh, it had a lower stock to flow ratio. By the time you got to 2015, it was down to 9%. By the time you got to 18, it was it was uh, 2018. It was down to 4%. Uh, for the first half of 2021 is down to 1.9%. And of course, that's because we have the declining block subsidy uh, with transactions on top of that. And so, you know, as you as as the protocol reaches over 20 million coins uh, and kind of, you know, reaches kind of the mature phase of its distribution cycle uh, transaction, overall minor revenue and and, and by extension energy usage uh, becomes an increasingly small percent of Bitcoin's market capitalization, uh, most likely, you know, Getting close to or going below one percent of its market cap, uh, wow. and so at, as Bitcoin reaches a steady state, uh, it eventually shifts towards transaction fees. And he even his paper kind of words it oddly because he talks about basically making the switch to transaction fees, but it's it's not like developers have to make that switch. It's already part of the code. It's just a natural. There's, there's already transaction fees there, and it's just a natural evolution over time that as block subsidies decrease. Uh, that that transaction fee becomes a more important part of the remaining block subsidy, uh, yeah. and so that's 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 one of the big things that that the environmentalists or the anti Bitcoin energy people miss is that the the actual scaling Bitcoin literally gets more efficient every year as the block subsidy approaches zero.
1: Well, we are going to come back to the miners because I think he made a critical error in his in his paper there, uh, and I do think it's an open question. Uh, something that people are keeping an eye on with regards to block subsidy and how much of that comes from transaction fees. Because we don't know uh, in the future if it will provide enough security. It's always a tough question to even ask or answer. It's like, how much security is enough security as well? I mean, we saw the hash rate fall by 40% recently, and blocks were still produced. But it is an open question. The The, the big area I had a question mark, the the one area I just could not understand, and, and I don't know if this uh, is something you can cover, but it's It's his opening point discussing quantitative finance. I do have a big (laughs) huh next to that. And it's just because it's a sentence I have no opportunity. I have no chance of understanding. But I'll I'll read it anyway. Consider that before efficient software for Monte Carlo simulations became widely available, some of us were using methods to generate pseudo-random variables via some form of chain nonlinear transformation in the spirit of von Neumann's original idea. I mean, so the mathematical side just went beyond me. And I think it would have done a lot of people. Did you go through that at all?
0: I, I went through it. But I mean, that part of his paper doesn't really have criticisms of Bitcoin. He's basically what I interpret as kind of demonstrating that he understands some of the deeper math aspects of it. And that, that seems to be his aim there. Um, because he's not actually really making an argument there. He's kind of, he's kind of walking through the history of, of Bitcoin to get to eventually then he, he later goes on to his arguments about the protocol. Uh, And so I, I I read it and I I just thought, okay, so I don't have an agreement or disagreement. I kind of moved on to the next set of pieces.
1: Lynn, is he, is he flexing?
0: I think he's flexing.
1: He's flexing. Right. OK, that's fine. OK, so let's get into the main arguments. Uh, why Bitcoin is worth exactly zero. So immediately, just my first uh, initial point on that is it's not uh, that's false. Bitcoin right now is worth $37,866. Um, I always say Bitcoin is worth the price people are willing to pay for it at that time. So I think it's a disingenuous point. But obviously, he goes on to justify and argue this. And I think here he makes an, a. Some points which are kind of fair and fair for discussion, but ultimately contain errors. So his comparison to gold and precious metals, being largely maintenance-free, uh, do not degrade over a historical horizon, and do not require maintenance to refresh their physical properties over time. Uh, it pointed out that cryptocurrencies required a, some main uh, a sustained amount of interest in them. Okay, so there's a two couple of points in here. Um, Firstly, when he re- refers to the protocol requiring maintenance and security, yes, it does. But for me, especially with significant holders of uh, gold, uh, I'm pretty sure storing and holding gold in Fort Knox or transporting large amounts of gold around the world um, is a is a different kind of trade off that that must be considered in terms of this. Bitcoin security comes from within the protocol, comes from miners. Gold security comes externally, usually from those who are holding it. And my 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 thoughts on this are that the secure the more gold you hold, you have an exponentially uh, higher cost of securing that gold than say for Bitcoin. Uh, There are people we know in the Bitcoin community who probably own a billion dollars of Bitcoin, and I my I imagine that's a lot a lower cost to secure than say a billion dollars of gold.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And so. You know, with, with say multi-signature solutions, someone can store a much larger amount of Bitcoin than it would be safe to do with gold. If you have a large amount of gold, you generally have to start relying on external custodians to do it for you, and you 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 know you use that as a, a counterparty you trust, and then they have the the security and the scale to do that effectively. And so one you know one way to separate this is so it is true that gold itself requires no energy input. That's that's one of its main qualities. That once you say make a gold bar. That'll last, uh, you know, uh, practically indefinitely. Uh, and uh, but a gold market does require energy input, uh, and so you know, basically securing, verifying, and occasionally transporting that gold does require this ongoing energy input. And so when you think of Bitcoin, for example, you know you could you could store the you could store the blockchain, you could store the code, you could just, you could uh, you know store your private keys. You could do that with a very 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 low energy state. But of course, Bitcoin wouldn't be very useful then. You, but what you know, most of that that energy is going into the fact that that's an active market that's adding new transactions to the blockchain, and the world is kind of coming to a consensus about the validity of that blockchain. Whereas, for example, if everyone say just buried their gold, stopped protecting it, uh, stopped verifying it, then sure, it, w- it would go into that very low, like no energy state, but it'd be useless at that point. Uh, and so, basically, in order for have gold as kind of a either a base layer of money. Or just as a market that that private participants choose to operate in, uh, that does have an ongoing energy, uh, you know, input cost in the same way that that Bitcoin does over over the very long run.
1: Well, this is, this is why I think the paper is disingenuous because this is an opportunity to discuss the trade-offs. Okay, I as a holder of gold don't need any real security. I could, I can keep a small amount of gold in my house and not really think about it. I don't require I don't have to worry about the security of a protocol. But also at the same time, I have to consider, look, Lynn, If I wanted to pay you in gold, the transport costs are expensive, whereas Bitcoin is cheaper. And that's where I think he's missed the opportunity to look like he's, uh, you know, he's arguing in good faith because he can say, here are the trade-offs. This is gold versus Bitcoin. This is, you know, the maintenance costs. This is the security cost. This is the transfer costs. And you can actually compare the two. And 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 there are trade-offs there. So that's where I felt it was kind of disingenuous. Um, and
0: yeah, they're good. Like they're like analysts within the whole Bitcoin community. For example, VJ uh, Boyapati yeah. has that chart uh, to comparing, uh, say, Bitcoin to gold and the different qualities, or one is better than the other. Uh, and I, I mean, I have a long history of investing in precious metals. I still own gold. Uh, and so, for example, I have articles also that discuss some of the pros and cons. It's not like Bitcoin is better in every attribute. You do have <laughs> certain certain areas where one's better than the other, and they have kind of different use cases. Uh, and so, basically. Uh, but I just don't view that, you know, that ongoing energy requirement is something that is notable, right? So, you know, if if I were to say, you know, what is the chance that two hundred years from now, you know, gold is 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 say not worth zero, whereas something happened, some tail risk happened to Bitcoin and made it worth zero? I would say, sure, I'd give that that that'd be in gold's favor, right? Because that mm. that that bar that gold coin will still be there and worth some non-zero amount, uh, whereas. You know, uh, but they both require that ongoing energy input in order to actually have an active market that's verified, that's secure, and that's being used for some purpose.
1: But that's that's the advancement of technology. Um, as we've grown to a, a world where people have, uh, you know, Netflix instead of uh, going to Blockbuster, we have MP3s rather than CDs. There is a reliance upon technology and energy and systems being up. I think this is kind of the world we've moved to. Uh, but I, I, like I say, I do think it would be better with showing the trade-offs. And you referred to VJ Boyapalli's chart. So anyone listening, it's a, an article called "The Bullish Case for Bitcoin," which you can Google and find. We'll try and stick it in the show notes. But I think VJ does quite a fair uh, comparison between fiat Bitcoin and gold. So definitely check that out. Um, but yeah, then then his final point: cryptocurrencies. But let's just stick with Bitcoin. Require some sustained amount of interest in them. I mean, he's right. Like fundamentally, he is right. But so does any uh, similar asset. Gold and silver require some sustained amount of interest in them, and uh, and we have to. You know, I still think we are in a speculative phase of Bitcoin. Um, I'm long, and I'm yeah, uh, highly confident Bitcoin will be a success, but there is no guarantee. And uh, and I think I think shitcoins have pr- proved that you require a sustained amount of interest in them because we can see specifically with BSV recently, the interest has fallen and it's been subjected to a 51% attack. And that's happened on a number, a number of other uh, cryptocurrencies. So I think his point is fair, but I also I think what he missed is identifying the risks, because the su- sustained amount of interest comes down to the cost of security. And if, we, if, we, if, we, if there is a significant drop in interest in Bitcoin, I think the risk is to security. Not to price. I I I don't worry too much about price. But if the price falls to falls to a certain point, there is a security risk. So I think he's right, but I don't think he went into enough detail.
0: I agree, and that's that's the your your way to frame it's the most accurate one, uh, and that's one of the risks that I take long term seriously about Bitcoin. Right when I think of ways that Bitcoin could fail, and so I had a whole article dedicated towards Bitcoin's eventually uh, eventual kind of that gradual shift towards relying on transaction fees. And kind of working through the math of that and so it is true that bitcoin does have to achieve a certain level of of scale you know enough to keep those blocks full uh, a reasonable market capitalization in order to have that that you know those transaction fees represent a significant hurdle uh, for someone trying to attack the blockchain uh, and so it is true that you know any any like monetary good other than like so an industrial good like say copper or oil is used for a specific purpose uh, so it doesn't really require your belief in it. Any monetary good, whether it's you know fiat currencies, can be enforced by the government, but still it has to you know have a certain level of credibility where people will will abandon it in the black market and go elsewhere for for their mm-hmm. you know their ways of transmitting value, uh, and so. One way to think about gold, for example, is that you know gold has a utility. You can use it in some engineering contexts. Uh, but the vast majority of of gold's price is the monetary premium replace on it due to its unique qualities compared to most other commodities. Uh, and so for example, if that uh, perception of gold as money were to ever dissipate over time, it's sure, gold would not go to zero. Gold security would not be threatened. the properties would not change, uh, but it could lose a dramatic amount of its value because we've placed so much of that value in the monetary premium that would then be going away. And so one thing that does make cryptocurrencies and, and Bitcoin different is that if, if it falls below a certain like maintenance threshold uh, and, and basically becomes a security risk, uh, then it, you know, that basically they could conceivably go to zero. if, if like as you point out, if, if it gets so low, that it, it, it ceases to function. Basically, the number of confirmations you need to make a transaction becomes, you know, unsuitably long due to improper security, and then it starts being, you know, subject to regular 51% attacks. Uh, that is, that is essentially spilling the end of that blockchain. Uh, and so that is true. That's one of the trade-offs between gold and Bitcoin. Uh, that Bitcoin has a kind of a minimum level of, of you know, network effects that it has to maintain in order to stay alive.
1: Yeah, that's. Um... Yeah, I think I think you framed that in the right way as well. Is that because we we did see with some uh, cryptocurrencies that some exchanges I, I remember at one point one of the exchanges changed their confirmations for a whole number of different <coughs> cryptocurrencies, and one of them was like over a thousand confirmations. It might again have been something like BSV, um, but yeah, I think that's a that's a fair way to frame it. And I think if he did, he could have done that, and that would have made that a fair argument. Okay, so the next area which is um, super interesting. Um, and I've got my own points, especially when we get on to miners, but uh, earnings, earnings-free assets with no residual value are problematic. So he, he compares Bitcoins to stocks and raises the issues of dividends and future rewards. A question I wanted to ask you, because this is where I'm kind of out of my depth, but uh, I don't get a di- dividend with Bitcoin. Yes, I can lend it out and earn interest, but I don't get a direct dividend with Bitcoin. But what I do get is at this kind of average 200% a year uh, appreciation in value compared to say the dollar now i can't think of anything i could invest in where i'd maybe get uh, the equivalent 200% uh, dividends uh, but but it, am i thinking of that in the wrong way like why is he bringing up dividends why is he bring, bringing up uh, yield the the yield you can earn from other assets
0: uh, so I think that's a fair point to bring up on his part, and it's something that I've I've looked at as well, and that's essentially what difference, differentiates an investment from a monetary good. Okay. Uh, and so when we invest in a company uh, or say a property, uh, you know we're doing it ultimately based on the earnings that that can provide us uh, if if we're treating it as an investment, and so. Obviously, a dividend-paying stock or a bond that pays interest or rental property with with rental income would achieve those right away. And so basically, with the way we'd model the value of those properties, of those assets, is to look out in the future, put our assumptions in for what, what kind of um, income stream is going to provide us, and then, say, use discounted cash flow analysis to kind of pull that into the present and determine what what we should pay for that if we want to achieve a certain level of return. Now, that's more complicated by, say, growth stocks that don't pay a dividend, right? So they're reinvesting mm-hmm. capital in the business. But even then, you're you're the the philosophical underpinning for why you might want to invest in that growth stock is you're because you know that in the future it can pay a dividend, that it, it it generates cash flow or will generate cash flow, and that over time that could begin paying back the owners. And so if you invested in Apple stock when it was very small, for example, it grew tremendously and eventually started paying a dividend. Uh, and, and paying its shareholders, and it's paid—it's paid, you know, like billions and billions and billions out in dividends, even though we don't think of it as a dividend-paying stock. Uh, and so that—that's how you—you kind of analyze an, an investable asset. Now, any sort of monetary good uh, or collectible is different because it doesn't produce a cash flow, and you're—you're you're owning it only uh, either for its utility, like a collectible or something like that. Or uh you know, as the monetary premium, the fact that you believe you could then sell that to a, a person at a later time. So that could be that could be comic books, that could be Magic the Gathering cards, that could be wine, uh, that could be gold, uh, that could be Bitcoin, that could be collectible cars. You're buying something that that doesn't have any any expectation to produce a cash flow um to to eventually have someone buy that off you in the future. And then of course you can go into different uh kind of categories for that. And so for example, you know the, a dollar, like a fiat currency itself doesn't pay interest. There's no interest coming out of a dollar. It's only when you give it to an institution that leverages it that, that they are able to pay you kind of interest on on that underlying dollar. The same thing's true for Bitcoin. Obviously we're having you know we're seeing lending markets around that and we can talk about how safe they are. But you know for example, you can earn interest on a Bitcoin if you're willing to essentially have a have you know have it levered up in some way, just like the dollar. Uh, and so I, I I would say that argument really is a separation between a monetary good mm. uh, versus a, a cash flow producing asset. Uh, and then there are other parts of his argument that you can go into. And so, for example, he argues that a collectible or gold chain is different, right? Because, you know, a collectible you can still have for its utility, its aesthetic value, right? So you can get joy from it while you own it, right? So if I have one of those magic cards.
1: I did laugh at that.
0: Yeah, I mean, so and so, yeah. If I have like a magic card that's like I like how it looks, I'm I'm happy that I own it. Um, you know, then whether or not I can eventually realize my goal is selling at a later price, I, it's it's still provided value. I can use it in the game, for example. And 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 Taleb, uh, used the analogy of his gold necklace that you know even if gold goes to zero, uh, he still got to wear that necklace for decades, and therefore he he got utility out of it. Uh, and so. One thing I would point out with, you know, Bitcoin, for example, is that, you know, you can actually separate it into the monetary aspect and then actually other utility it's offering. And so even if, say, 10 years from now, Bitcoin goes to zero, there are still people that got value from Bitcoin as a monetary utility. And so, for example, anyone who's familiar with the work of Alex Gladstein, for example, uh, you know, he's i mean some of its individual articles uh with use cases is longer than taleb's entire paper let alone if you read like 10 of alex's uh articles and he just catalogs all the different ways uh, that basically he or other people uh, have used bitcoin in a human rights uh, uh you know a uh, situation so that could be for example the fact that bitcoin's portable allows people that are fleeing certain regimes to convert their money to bitcoin Leave the country and then convert back into other assets in a way that you can't really do with gold or cash or or things like that uh it's also the being able to send permissionless payments so if if, say he or the human rights foundation wants to you know provide funding to a specific say group in a country that's being oppressed or that's being otherwise blocked you know you might not be able to effectively get money to them through the traditional banking methods uh, but you can send them directly uh, either the, either via the base layer of the Bitcoin or via Lightning, depending on how big your transaction is, you can send them directly money. Uh, and so there's already tons of people that have benefited from Bitcoin. Uh, so even if even if this whole project fails at some point, just like Taleb's gold necklace, there are already people that benefited from the fact that this has exists. Uh, so and there's, then,
1: there's so there's kind of a net value to everyone who's getting a usage out of Bitcoin.
0: Exactly. And I would say, you know, if it, say it failed, say it failed next year, I would say that would be an, you know, ultimately by the end of things, it'd be an underwhelming outcome, but it still would have had a non-zero outcome. And then the Mm. longer it goes, the more that accumulates uh, basically uh, a, a net added value. And then we're also seeing, for example, with layer three technologies, like Impervious AI or Sphinx Chat, we're also seeing that now the Lightning Network can be used to run you know a VPN you can use it to run decentralized social networks you can use it to send encrypted information around the world so basically it can basically provide people with access to information uh, even in 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 areas that are kind of hostile to that information and so if that gets more developed that's another form of utility added on top of those permissionless payments or those self-custody assets that can further benefit people even if one day in the future bitcoin you know for whatever reason fails
1: well, that's another interesting point because uh, Peter Schiff similarly falls back on gold's industrial use as uh, as uh, evidence that gold is a, a better uh, asset to hold than Bitcoin uh, and, and gives it intrinsic value, that term intrinsic value. Um, but I think what we have with Bitcoin is this growing te- technology use of Bitcoin. So uh, one great example is now Strike. Strike uses the Bitcoin network to send different currencies around the world. If I want to send you dollars... I can, if I want to send you hundred dollars, I whatever the uh, rate is, seventy two pounds. Uh, we use the Bitcoin rails for you to receive one hundred dollars, and it's it's instant and it's free or close to free. I think it's free actually. So, um, and I also know Peter Todd is working on his open timestamps uh, on top of the Bitcoin network. So, one of the things that I was going to discuss with Peter Schiff next time I talk to him is when you talk about industrial uses, Bitcoin has technology uses.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and, and you can separate them into into monetary uses or non-monetary uses. And mm. so the ability to send permissionless payments, that application of technology for that specific goal, in a way that, the, say, fiat currencies or gold are not great at doing, um, that that's already a specific utility, and it happens to be a monetary utility. Uh, but then you know, at, you know, for the longest time, you could argue that Bitcoin was unique in the sense that it was a purely monetary commodity where say gold is like a 90% monetary commodity and like 10% utility uh and so bitcoin was 100% monetary utility uh but actually what we're seeing with these some of these layer 3 technologies is they're actually now bringing some non-monetary uh utility to bitcoin as well which is interesting uh and yeah. so yeah i think over the long span of, of bitcoin's project history again even if it one day fails you know, this this is now representing a stream of utility that people are getting from the fact that they have a, a permissionless way to send payments or a way to portably transmit value in a way that uh, other technologies have not provided so far.
1: All right. So the next thing is where I think he makes one of his critical errors. And I'm going to just give a shout out to Radley Rattler because it's his uh, thread that I use quite a bit for a lot of my research. And I'll tag that into the the show notes. But if we so this is talking about Bitcoin being worth zero, if we expect that at any point in the future the value will be zero when miners are extinct, the technology becomes obsolete or future generations get into other assets, and bitcoin loses its appeal for them, and then the value must be zero now so there's there's two things there is it's whether people get into other assets and also if miners become extinct but one of the one of what was quite strange about it he's he didn't discuss why miners would become extinct. I think the only logical answer for why miners become extinct, if you get out of uh, a global coordinated ban on Bitcoin mining, um, is the fact that he, I think he's probably considering the block subsidy and uh, how that is decreasing over time. But he's not considering the increase in uh, the the percentage of the subsidy the subsidy coming from transaction fees. Um, so I think he's missed that point. But I think it would have been a stronger argument if he'd explained why he thinks miners will be extinct without actually explaining yeah, he, it. There's no, there's no argument yeah, there.
0: Exactly. If he focused that part of his paper about the fact that blockchains have a minimum security threshold under which they start becoming effectively unusable, uh, that would have been a stronger argument to make there. Uh, but even then, even, even acknowledging that that can happen to a blockchain, including potentially Bitcoin, if, if some of the worst scenarios happen, uh, you can say, okay, so... You know e- but it goes back to that previous point of even if that one day goes to zero uh the fact that basically bitcoin is providing value to people in certain ways uh doesn't end up getting ne- negated uh and so uh basically the fact that you can you can use bitcoin for permissionless payment in a way that you there's no other asset that will fill that goal as securely as bitcoin currently does means that it currently has a value uh and so you know even if it one day does not have a value it does have a value today uh and then two you know, you can go into expected value theorem to, to determine what is what is like the long what is the what is the value today considering the range of probable features. And so, for any people who's not familiar with the expected value theorem, you take your set of estimated like options for what could happen, and then you you weight them by the probability that they'll happen, and you also uh, assign of like a value to each one. And so, let's say for example, if we were going to make a bet with a coin flip, there's a 50 50 chance, assuming a fair coin, of either of us winning, and then we can weight the um, you know the expect the, how much we get. So we each, if we you know the winner pays the other one a hundred dollars. That's a fair bet. Uh, and so, but you can have another expected value theorem of buying a lottery ticket, where there's like a, you know one in a million chance you're going to win a million dollars, and then there's like a, you know vast majority of chance you're going to lose that. Uh, your your initial investment is just you know you say you spent two dollars on the ticket. It's going to be worth zero. Uh, And so you can actually math that out to determine what is that what is that ticket actually kind of worth in a probabilistic sense. And so when you do expected value of Bitcoin, you know you can assign some non-zero possibility that it goes to zero in your lifetime, right? So that it fails to catch on, there's a coordinated attack, there's a critical bug or or disastrous hard fork, or something like that, and it eventually falls below a security threshold and starts going the way of just being an ineffective asset that that you know loses a lot of its monetary premium. So that's that's one possible feature. Then you can have kind of rather bullish ones where basically you argue that, you know, there, there, there are reasonable cases to be made that say Bitcoin's market capitalization could be as big or bigger than gold, which in this sense is, a you know, a basically a 10x increase in price from here. And then you can have a range of outcomes in the middle where Bitcoin just kind of continues to exist in a, in a variety of different shapes and forms and market capitalizations. And when you when you run those numbers, uh, you get some non-zero expected value for Bitcoin. And then also, even if you just put math aside, if you just approach it intuitively, if someone, say, went to Celeb and said, okay, here's a, here's a time-locked device with a 1,000 Bitcoin on it, and so you can't spend it now, you can't just convert it to fiat, but in 15 years, this will unlock, and you can do whatever you want with the Bitcoin, and it's free. Would you take it? And so if you if you if you rationally expected Bitcoin to have be mathematically provably worth zero, you say no, because I, why would I accept uh, I, it's not worth anything. So I will not accept that. But any rational person uh, made that if, if made that offer would, of course, accept that. Because even if even if you're bearish on Bitcoin, you think probably 15 years from now, uh, the flaws will have, you know, in, in their view, the flaws will have wrecked it. It'd be worth zero or near zero. Uh, there's still a possibility that it won't be. Uh, and so, of course, you'd ex- any rational, uh, you know, economic actor would accept those thousand time locked Bitcoin and just put it aside and and see what happens in fifteen years. So we so we know that in terms of forward probability, either looking at it mathematically or just intuitively, we know that it has some non-zero value. And of course, the big question is is what is that value? And of course, the market's mm. trying to determine that every day. But we know that it's non-zero.
1: Well, so even if it was ten dollars per Bitcoin. For those thousand, I'm sure Taleb would take it. Exactly. Yeah. Even so if, what, yeah,
0: if it goes down to ten bucks, it still be worth ten thousand uh, dollars. And at, so it, it
1: even at a thousand dollars. Exactly. So what's the price he would, he would secretly pay for those thousand Bitcoin?
0: Yeah, it's a good point, point. and mean, maybe you know maybe as someone who's bearish would say, I think the current market price does not uh, you know, adequately reflect af- risks. And so, for example, they might want to pay a lower price for that. But that's what the market's trying to determine every day. There's plenty of people that are willing to pay more than the current price. There's people that are willing to pay less than the current price. The price kind of sorts itself out every day as it's kind of weighting the probability uh, of, of its future outcome. And so when we see signs of adoption, it tends to have a price bump. And when it sees signs of government pushback or some of those other signs get pulled back, we generally see the price go down a little bit. So the the market's like this constant. Of course, then you also have leverage and liquidations and, and things like that. But it, you know, in in the broad sense, essentially the market is a probability machine, kind of sorting through all the future, all the future, you know, possibilities of what happens with Bitcoin.
1: Next up, i talked to Lin more about Taleb's Bitcoin Black Paper. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. OK, let's talk about Gemini, the only place I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin. But as I said before, I'm not selling Bitcoin right now, so I'm only using it for buying Bitcoin. Why would I be selling Bitcoin right now? Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And you know what? I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you, you, have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing. And that is all through one clear, attractive interface. So if you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. And next up, we have Revolut. Now, as many of you know, Lloyd's TSB, my bank, banker, 25 years, closed down all of my accounts recently. It's kind of clear. They don't like Bitcoin. And then Revolut reached out to me and they're like, Pete, we see what's going on here. Do you want to move over? do you want to get a Revolut account? I was like, sure. And I moved everything over in a couple of hours. They like Bitcoin and they want to make it easier for Bitcoiners to transfer to exchanges. And now Revolut are offering $20 or £20 to all new customers that complete three card transactions. It only takes a few minutes to set up and you can create a card and add it to Apple Pay immediately and get that cash straight in your pocket. I'd recommend converting it to Bitcoin though, because that's just me. Now, this is a new relationship, and I am working with the Revolut team to help them build a bank, which is bitcoin There is a lot to navigate, but we're going to get this. Now, if you want to find out more, please do head over to Revolut.com forward slash WBD. That is revolu is forward slash WBD. Let's talk about BlockFi, who have recently just announced that they have launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa signature card. Now, for my listeners who are in the US, who are interested in or owning Bitcoin and want to stack more sats... The Block 5 Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin because you get 1.5% Bitcoin back on every card purchase. And you know what? There's also no annual fee. It's not just that, though. You can also earn 3.5% back in Bitcoin during your first three months of card ownership, and everything you spend over $50,000, you will earn 2% back in Bitcoin. There is no better way to stack SATs. And I cannot wait to get my card. If you want to find out more, please head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. And this week, we're finishing with Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. And you know what? The Nano S I bought back then, I am still using now. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And if you're an Android phone user, you can connect that to your Nano S and manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please do head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. So he also, as I said, there was two parts. He also mentions that in the future, Bitcoin loses its appeal and something else may perhaps come along that's better than Bitcoin. I think any Bitcoin who accepts that's a possibility. We've Many of us don't believe it. Some do. Some believe Ethereum is better and they've moved their investment over to Ethereum. And over time, they will be proved either right or wrong by the market. I think they're fundamentally wrong. I know you have your criticisms of Ethereum, but I think every Bitcoin who accept that something better may come along, but... We haven't seen it yet. So that that is a possibility. And he raises that precious metals lost their quality as a medium of exchange. I don't think it's that they lost their qualities as a medium of exchange. Something better came along, which monetary notes, and then monetary notes were replaced by digital money. I I think Bitcoin has fair criticisms as a uh, medium of exchange. I think its main flaw is really volatility. That's one of its main issues because you can't really, if you want to price things in sats in a supermarket, it's a bit like Venezuelan's pricing uh, groceries in a supermarket in the Bolivar. They're always repricing. That, that is a fair criticism. We all accept that. And maybe we don't hyper Maybe we will always have a more stable sovereign currency in, in some countries. Like, I accept that, but I don't think that's a reason to dismiss Bitcoin. It's a bit like any technology, you know. Mobile phones we may use for 10, 20, 30 years, and then at some point we just have a chip in our head and we use that instead. Like, technologies come and go, and Bitcoin is a technology as well as being a financial protocol, and it might last for 40 years, it might last for 100 years, it might last for 200 years. We just don't know. I don't find that a a reason to dismiss it. If something is a better money, it is until something even better comes along.
0: Exactly. And this is the first kind of upgraded type of money, right? So it's Mm. a protocol that can upgrade. Right, so it's not locked into its its current form, uh, and so the question becomes: How does the network effect of that whole protocol compare to some of the competing network effects, or to brand new technologies so we haven't conceived yet? And so, as you point out, right now it's one of the best forms of money we have, uh, and you know we're seeing Bitcoin monetize in real time. Uh, and so mm. what 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 gold went through over thousands of years, you know, Bitcoin's going through in in like you know so far like twelve years, and so it went from zero to a trillion market cap and then came back down a little bit and so this is basically it's, it's trying to find this total total adjustable market and so of course it's doing that with volatility uh, and so right now it's in that phase where it's being recognized you know so far more so for the store value aspect as a scarce and secure thing that on the side you can use for permissionless payments as well and so it's gone through these different phases where especially mm. earlier on when it was cheaper it was, it was prized a little bit more for its medium of exchange. But then as people realize, you know, it, it's actually gone up so tremendously, uh, the, the overall kind of market started, you know, looking at it more of a store of value type of technology. But then interestingly, now that, you know, with the development of Lightning and other technologies like that, we're kind of now seeing more use cases again for the medium of exchange because Bitcoin is something that can upgrade over time. Uh, and so that's, you know... Different market participants have different mental models for how they look at Bitcoin. And so, for example, someone like Michael Saylor, who's determining what asset to put his corporate treasury in, he's not analyzing different assets based on their medium of exchange capability. He's looking at which one is, is likely to hold v- uh, value over a multi-year or multi-decade period of time. Uh, and when he went through all the the you know possibilities, he picked Bitcoin. And he specifically likes to call it a crypto asset or a bank in cyberspace. Because he doesn't like to view it as a, as a currency. Uh, and so of course, different market participants are are, are kind of judging its qualities in ways that, that that whether or not it meets the need that they're trying to use Bitcoin for. And so mm. if you look at on-chain Bitcoin transactions, I mean, let's see he has a he has a, a you know a, a section there about the downsides of using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. Some of them are fair and some of them are not. So for example, he says, Transactions in Bitcoin are considerably more expensive than wire services or other mode of transfers or ones in other cryptocurrencies. They are order of magnitude slower than standard commercial systems used by credit card companies. Anecdotally, while you can instantly buy a cup of coffee with your cell phone, you would need to wait 10 minutes if you used Bitcoin. Uh, they cannot compete with African mobile money, uh, nor can the system outlined above, as per its very structure, accommodate a large volume of transactions which is something central for such an ambitious payment system. And so that's, I mean, that's a really good argument from like 2013. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and
1: Well, Lynn, so, what we should say is because we've moved into the the next section, which is his second comment, successes for Bitcoin as a digital currency. So we, we will. Let me just close out on that yeah. first point so people are aware. This comment one with why Bitcoin is worth exactly zero. I can say a number of things, but actually your argument is the best. If you could take a thousand Bitcoin uh, locked for 15 years and you could have it for zero, would you take it? Of course you would. So what is the price? I absolutely believe Taleb would pay $10 per Bitcoin for those thousand. I believe he would. Therefore, And even if he wouldn't, if you surveyed a million people, I think the majority would. Therefore, Bitcoin does have value above zero. Um, I just wanted to conclude that because I think that's that's, that's a great argument. And just as we're going into this, because the next point was success uh, as a digital currency, um, and this is one of the sections you're relating to there. So, sorry, just to structure it. I found this bit really poorly argued as well.
0: Well, this is, I mean, this is probably the weakest part in the paper yeah. because it fails to mention Lightning. And so going back for a second, basically, you know, this, so Bitcoin's base layer, it is true, is not well designed for uh, many types of on like on-premise payments uh, and payments where you want any sort of a reasonable turnaround because uh, he actually understates it because he mentions 10 minutes and realistically you want a couple couple block confirmations for for so it could actually really be more like a half hour or more depending on the size of your transaction uh, and then of course when you include transaction fees and things like that obviously Bitcoin base layer transactions are not great for buying coffee uh, now I I would contend that you know it is actually more cost effective than many types of international wire transfers. Yeah, uh, it is. Um, it depends uh, you know, on
1: the timing because I think it's around about two dollars fifty, two dollars sixty right now. But back during a couple of months ago, I think it went up to about sixty dollars. Uh, and most I, my, my experience with wire transfers is they're about thirty dollars. I don't know what it's like, like Lynn. If I wired you some money, but my fee would be about thirty dollars. Um, if I wired you a billion dollars, I don't know if the fee's the same. I don't know if you If there's any form of scaling up of the, it the de- fees,
0: it would de- it would depend on the bank. Generally, that will not scale linearly. Uh, but there if someone's trying to transfer that amount of money, uh, it would certainly take longer. Uh, and it's because there'd be far more checks to you know make sure that that's all going to be proper. Uh, and so uh, that the basically the amount can scale up to a certain point, but then it becomes more about time and hassle about sending right. that kind of large amount of money.
1: One other thing I just want to add in there before before you go is that one of the things I noticed and in wiring money internationally myself is that the banks use a different exchange rate from what is quoted in the market, and I think they're they're taking on the exchange as well. So for international wires, yes, you have a thirty dollar fee, but because uh, I invoice internationally some of my sponsors, I was noticing that I I was getting a different amount from the quoted exchange rate. Uh, so I think they're on the take there too. I just thought that should be dropped in.
0: I've noticed that too. I used to work with engineering procurement, and so we, we'd buy stuff from Canada, and we'd always have to negotiate the exchange rate and, and things like that, you know, with the with the counterparty, because those can add up when you're making a, a six or seven figure purchase. Mm. Um, uh, and so uh, that is that is certainly a good point. And then so when we look at at Bitcoin as a base layer, I mean, obviously it, it makes certain trade-offs, but it's also disingenuous to compare it to a credit card uh, because a credit card transaction is a layer on top of an underlying settlement layer. And so Bitcoin, in that sense, is, is more comparable to a wire transfer, something like Fedwire, uh, the, these kind of underlying settlement systems. Uh, and so if actually, if you compare Bitcoin to a wire transfer, it's it's faster. Uh, and you can you can literally do it on a, on a Sunday morning at 1 a.m., uh, internationally. So it's actually in many ways, it's a better underlying settlement technology than what we currently have available. Uh, but then when you say, okay, now we want to do an individual purchase with it, kind of like how we wouldn't purchase coffee with a, with a wire transfer. Uh, we generally, you know, it's not suitable for that, that purpose. Uh, and so that's, that's part of the reason why it hasn't caught on. I mean, there's obviously certain, uh, uh internet use cases where it caught on like early days with the Silk Road, or if say someone like say Alex Gladstein wants to send a human rights group some, some funding, Bitcoin is actually the best technology available to him to do that. And so there actually are certain niche cases where a base layer of transaction is the is the most ideal uh, solution. But in many cases, uh, especially for those of us in in developed markets, uh, it's it's generally not an on an on chain transaction is not the best kind of you know medium of exchange for many of our our purposes. Uh, but that's where the the argument kind of gets weaker because he doesn't mention Lightning either in that section or anywhere in the paper. And, that's and so that's I'm actually not. that yeah that's that's a critical flaw because if if a large portion of your paper is focused on Bitcoin's effectiveness as a medium of exchange. But you don't even mention lightning. Like you don't even you don't even acknowledge that you know it exists. Like he should have at least flexed and mentioned lightning, and then have say reasons X Y Z why he doesn't think it's suitable, right? So you can well, it's well, it's different. I
1: was going to say, sorry to interrupt you. I was going to say what this said to me is like either he doesn't really know anything about the lightning network, uh, which is a possibility. Uh, you might have heard of it and just. Not really understand what it is. And if he doesn't, this paper, he hasn't even passed it through somebody who un- understands Bitcoin. Surely he has a friend he can turn around to and say, can you check this? Because every, everybody will instantly say the Lightning Network. And his quote is, while you can instantly buy a cup of coffee with your cell phone, you would need to wait 10 minutes if you use Bitcoin. So yes, you're right. He's got the 10 minutes wrong. But I've, I've got videos of me on Twitter buying coffee with my cell phone using the Lightning Network in El Salvador. And it's instant. Exactly. So, so he's complete compl- either it's either ignorant or dishonest.
0: I uh, so yeah, I don't know which one it is, but I'm inclined towards that he doesn't know because mm. it's it's because it's actually it's awkward then to read the paper and it's just not even mentioned, and because then you knowingly open yourself up to a massive criticism that that invalidates the paper, and so you know I, I basically he if he knew he would have probably had a paragraph explaining, even if he, because he, he kind of, there are other things he dismisses quickly in the paper. And so he could have had a paragraph saying, there's a the Lightning Network, but it's bad. And it, it would have been a really weak argument, but it would have acknowledged it. The fact that he hasn't mentioned it is is one of the most interesting things about the paper. And so when we look at the Lightning Network, you know, it's not a perfect solution yet. It's, it's, it's funny because it's only three and a half years old. Even the design process only goes back like six years. But if you compare how far that's come in a rather short amount of time, I mean, if you look at the major, uh, you know, the handful of companies that are making Lightning implementations, like Lightning Labs or Blockstream, the number of employees dedicated to that is in the dozens. And then when you look at, you add some wallet makers, you add, you know, like the people at Strike, you add, you know, things like that, we're talking about the number of people working on Lightning, uh, you know, in any sort of, you know, kind of full time capacity it's got to be in like uh, the lower hundreds. I mean, I don't know the exact number, but this is a tiny number. Whereas if you look at PayPal, Visa, and MasterCard alone, they employ over 60,000 people. Then if you include WeChat, Alipay, all these other payment systems, you know, you're up against hundreds and hundreds of thousands of of people working in payments. And this tiny little network with like dozens or hundreds of people putting it together is now basically being used in in a sovereign country as, as one of their legal tenders. Uh, it's used, you know, it's a tremendously successful protocol given how young it is and how few people are working on it. And that's actually a testament to how interesting the underlying technology is, uh, that basically by using the existing Bitcoin base layer as their security assurance, they're able to build this out and scale this in a way that's actually pretty tremendous compared to some of the competitors. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, it's just kind of remarkable that it came up like that and, an example, I mean, if, if anyone, people that went to the Bitcoin conference in, in June, one of the big takeaways from that network, I mean, from that conference was that Lightning is really kind of hitting critical mass now. And mm-hmm. so they had, I've heard from sources that something like 50,000 gaming transactions were made using Lightning. But even just using one example, like Thunder Games, they they processed over 13,000 Lightning transactions uh, and the average fee was like a, a fraction of one penny, uh, 1.4 sats to to be specific in terms of. So you know when you we have these actual use cases kind of you know working out now, uh, and that that network effects keep getting stronger over time. And sure, I mean people can then say Lightning has certain uh, limitations, right? So so. Right now, the capacity is not enough that everyone in the world could have a self-custodial Lightning wallet, for example. And so, it, you, you can have kind of a mix of, of custodial or non-custodial, depending on your specific use case, right? If you're trying to just, if, if you're an unbanked person in a market uh, with a hundred dollars on your on your wallet, you might not care about the the level of like rock-solid security there compared to someone who's like a, a power user of that or an experienced user of it. And so, Lightning still yeah. has weaknesses, but it's actually tremendous how far it's come in a rather short period of time. Well,
1: there's a few interesting points on that as well because he he has to he talks about the the cup of coffee and it's you know uh, it's instant and and on your phone and you know the cost associated with um, the the using settling on chain. But one of the things that's interesting is if you did learn about the Lightning Network, what's really interesting is if I'm in. Uh, use El Salvador as my example. If I use my Visa card to buy a cup of coffee and the cup of coffee is $3, yeah, I I pay $3. I'm not sure what percent the vendor loses. Um, I'm, I'm assuming it's like maybe 30 cents or whatever for the transaction fee. But because it's an international transaction, I think I end up paying like 50 cents to a dollar every time I use my card. But... So even if you forget what I'm using, because it makes sense for me then to just use the Lightning Network because it's almost free, it's also great for the vendor because it's almost free. So both sides are actually saving on, on the cost. So actually, it's cheaper to use the Lightning Network to buy a cup of coffee than the Visa Network. If, if Certainly, if you're using a custodial service, it's as fast, it's maybe sometimes even faster. Um, so he completely misses that. And I think the thing is, if he had discovered the Lightning Network, what we would have actually got was why the Lightning Network fails as a section, which is kind of sad. There's other things I think he, he misses as well. Um, I think he misses two other key points in that with Bitcoin, it is final settlement. So even if it takes an hour to confirm, if I was to send you a large amount of Bitcoin, say it's 10,000, 100,000, a million, we see it immediately, even if we're waiting for six confirmations. I I can't remember if it was. Somebody told me this story about they were trying to get some money out of Argentina. I don't think it was the sailor story. And they were trying to move money from Argentina to the US or the other way. And they said once it went into the system, they didn't know where it was. They didn't know any way of tracking it. And it didn't turn up for a few days. And there were some issues and they were having to find out. Like we completely eradicate that problem of moving money between different institutions across borders. It is wallet to wallet. It is address to address, and we instantly see it. And so, I think he's missed so many points on this section. I, th- I thought this whole section was just a complete and absolute failure, apart from one area which is worth discussing, which is when we get into whole the unit of account. Um, now, he does make a mistake because he said, uh, apart from the El Salvador. Uh, residency fee or three Bitcoin. Bitcoin isn't used a, a, as a unit of account. I mean, it's wrong. Bitcoin is a unit of account within Bitcoin for, for transaction fees and miners, and is also a unit, of, a unit of account on exchanges for cryptocurrencies. And I do know other people are using Bitcoin as a unit of account. But again, I tried to think this through, Lynn. I think there's a massive problem with Bitcoin being a unit of account unless it's a stable currency and unless it's the dominant currency globally, because there's always Comparative to other currencies, it's always going to be volatile, and I've kind of accepted that it might not have ever happen. And is that does that mean we have to reconsider what Bitcoin is? I mean, I, I, so I, I I think it's an area of, of discussion, and I think it's a valid area of discussion because a lot of people bring it up. But I think it's something we've all come to accept, and that's fine. It doesn't stop it being a medium of exchange; it just brings in certain things you have to consider.
0: That's where uh, we can separate Bitcoin, the asset, from Bitcoin, the monetary network. Uh, and so the cool mm-hmm. thing about Bitcoin is that it's both, and they both have different use cases. So that's part of you know, the fact that it's it's this young asset that's being monetized in real time, which, which, which uh, necessitates volatility. Uh, and so Bitcoin currently, in most contexts, makes a poor unit of account. Uh, but that's why many people have instead looked at it primarily as their emergent store of value. Uh, or their crypto asset, as they call it, rather than kind of you know valuing it for its its medium of exchange capabilities. Um, but a part of the reason why it has that store of value property, of course, is because of the fact that you can self custody it, because of the fact that you can send these permissionless payments. So some of those some of those underlying settlement capabilities that make it unique are part of what kind of ironically gives it that store of value property because you're kind of storing up the ability to do that if you want to. Um, uh, but you know, as we see now, it's just it's not currently really meant to be a unit of account, and it doesn't really rely on that. In the same way, for example, there's virtually no, no, there's very little in the world that is priced in in gold as a unit of account. But that doesn't change the fact that in terms of store value properties, gold is better than fiat currencies uh, over the over a long enough timeline. Like if you were to bur- bury cash, uh, you know, in your backyard or bury gold you come back two days, two decades later. Gold has certainly, with you know, almost certainly, unless you unless you happen to buy gold at the peak of a very rare bubble, that would have outperformed the fiat currency. Uh, and then even if you say put currency in a bank, generally over the, over a long enough timeline, gold would even kind of outpace that so far. Uh, and so, you know, that doesn't just the fact that gold is not used to to price. Co- we don't we don't price coffee in terms of say grams of gold. It doesn't change the fact that gold has value for either jewelry or or its engineering purposes or as a form of money, as a form of of holding self-custodied long-term value. Uh, and so so far, you know that that kind of comes down to you know, say say when you have like the large blockers versus small blockers arguing about you know what bitcoin should be, uh, and they they kind of cite uh, you know aspects of of Satoshi's paper. Well, it kind of doesn't matter what it was meant to be. What matters is what the market judges to be and what it values it to be. Uh, and so it's, it's been pretty clear for a while that a large portion of Bitcoin's monetary premium is about the scarcity, is about the audibility, uh, is about the fact that it can be its this kind of off-grid value storage mechanism uh, that is separate from the fact that it's a unit of account. And so, yeah, I would agree with you that whether or not it ever becomes a unit of account is is somewhat different and it's still valuable regardless of that question.
1: Well, the the medium exchange as a technology is an important point where you were referring to Alex Gladstein earlier and uh, the the use cases he talks about. We had the NSARS protests in Nigeria. We had the Lukashenko protests in Belarus. Uh, As a medium exchange, it was the only currency that could help support those activists. It was the only permissionless currency that could be sent uh, into these countries that had the necessary liquidity for people to be able to convert that into local currency. So it, it serves a different purpose as a medium of exchange so i think that's a that's a great point Lynn. so again i so i think he fails in this section but because i, I think he failed because primarily he doesn't understand the lightning network a number of his arguments are factually incorrect um and uh, i just i'd love your point you wouldn't use fedwire for, to buy a cup of coffee i think that's brilliant um so i think i think he, he he failed quite badly in this section and i think he just needs to go back to the drawing board and actually spend some time looking at the lightning network and and therefore maybe we get an updated paper about why the lightning network doesn't work but at least it's a, it's a valid argument and it's and that and that's actually what's quite sad is that I still I still get people email me or tweet at me and talk about uh bitcoin being slow or bitcoin being expensive and they've been, failed to actually even know that the lightning network exists so cool okay last section is a uh, payment system so he discusses there is a conflation between accepting Bitcoin for payments and pricing goods in Bitcoin. So we're going into the unit account again. To price in Bitcoin, Bitcoin, the price must be fixed with a conversion into fiat floating rather than the reverse. I think his I think his main argument in this section is he's essentially saying we haven't hyper Bitcoin yet. If we had, Lynn, we would be paid in Bitcoin, would we be pricing in Bitcoin? Everything would be priced in Bitcoin. And we've we've discussed uh, a lot of that. But my main criticism is that he he's arguing that we haven't reached the hyper bitcoinization yet. Yep, we're twelve years in. I think we're kind of repeating ourselves here actually.
0: And yeah, I agree. Basically the fact that we've not, you know, that that, that Bitcoin is really twelve years old. I mean, it's remarkable that it hit a trillion dollars in, in twelve years in terms of market capitalization. Uh so it's already actually gone farther than many people thought it would by this point in its life cycle. So the fact that the whole world doesn't accept its as a unit of account yet doesn't affect the the argument of bitcoin as a viable asset and an example i mean he, he points out that basically if you if the company if a company doesn't get their revenue in dollars if they're if their uh overhead expenses are not in, in in dollars uh if their employees uh you know are not paid in dollars and those employees can't use dollars as, as a medium of exchange he applies that all to bitcoin for example uh but as i point out with dollars if you if you go to an emerging market that's not dollarized right you know they're they're they you generally don't have dollars as, as a unit of account because as as his argument applies you know all of the the revenues the overhead expenses the employee salaries all those things are in the local currency uh now they still might value dollars right they still might say wow a dollar i'd like to have some dollars tucked away somewhere right Or i might want to you know i i can accept a dollar if i if i you know convert it into what it's currently worth in our exchange system uh, and still accept that as a, a you know a form of money, and so that's an example of where a dollar can be recognized as money in a market where it's not a unit of account. And so Bitcoin's kind of along that same route, where for most people it's not the unit of account because as he, you know as he points out, that's not what revenues are denominated in. That's what not not what most people are paid in. Uh, but basically, right now it's this external good, it's this external you know gold-like asset, for example that is being valued for its properties aside from unit of account. But then when you then you go back and you add the fact that you can separate Bitcoin, the asset, from Bitcoin, the monetary network, because they're, they're both kind of, kind of important parts of the system. And you can say, you know, we don't want to worry about Bitcoin's volatility now. So instead, we're just going to use Bitcoin as like fiat-to-fiat transfer mechanism in a way that is because it's an application of software in a way that the world hasn't seen before. It's, it's better than most legacy systems, it, assuming you're using the right layer for the right application. Uh, and uh, so that's what we see, for example, that as you point out, in, in many of those countries, if you want to send someone money uh, to certain regions, uh, Bitcoin is like, you know, pretty much the only or, or by far superior way to send that value. Uh, and so and, and it doesn't matter the fact that you convert it back to your local currency, People would store Bitcoin knowing that they can use it for that purpose, as one example, let alone any sort of concerns of just viewing it as the hardest form of money, saying, okay, it's got scarcity, it's got credible scarcity, uh, and so I'm going to hold it against these other assets that have less scarcity, right? So that's one kind of store of values case, but then you're also essentially holding the utility that you could make permissionless payments with that in the future if you decide to.
1: That's a really, really good point, actually. I hadn't even considered it like that. Because when I was in Venezuela, everything is priced in the Bolivar. You go out to dinner, even in East Caracas, everything is priced in the Bolivar. But when you go to pay, especially in uh, some of the more upmarket restaurants, and I say upmarket, what I mean is, uh, you're not out of roadside uh, uh, eatery. But if you're at a, uh, a restaurant... you you get your bill in Bolivar, everything's priced in the Bolivar, but at the end they say, can you pay in dollar? I mean, they want you to pay in the dollar. And they'll do the calculation at that point and tell you what the price is in the dollars. And actually that's analogous to what's happening in parts of, uh, uh, the small part of Venezuela, which, uh, sorry, El Salvador, which is adopting Bitcoin. Uh, Again, when I was in El Tunco, exactly the same is happening. The, The coffees are priced in dollars, but they want your Bitcoin. So again, they'll run the calculation at that point. So that's actually a, that's a really interesting, solid argument for real-world examples of where that's that's actually happening. Comparing uh, fiat to fiat, and then f- uh, fiat to Bitcoin. That's uh, super interesting. The other thing he talked about is the inflation hedge. Okay, this is an interesting one. I've talked about Bitcoin being an inflation hedge, but sometimes I've even questioned it myself. Said, "Well, is it really?" Because Bitcoin tends to correlate. Quite significantly to to the markets, and I wonder if Bitcoin also benefits from the expansion of the money in the way other assets do, and also it certainly isn't. I think it's nuanced. So Bitcoin is definitely an inflation hedge. For my friend in Venezuela, Uh, he keeps all his money in Bitcoin because even when Bitcoin drops in price, generally speaking, against the bolivar, it's still outperforming it. So he is definitely using it as an inflation hedge but he's in a very unique scenario. I don't consider, certainly in the short term, Bitcoin as an inflation hedge uh, against uh, the pound. Um, Actually, in in the short term, it's dangerous to think about it as an inflation hedge over maybe a year, because uh, whilst Bitcoin can go up to 300%, it can also drop 20, 30%. Uh, So over that period, it has not been an inflation hedge because um, it hasn't outperformed it. Uh, So I think he has a valid argument there. I, I do think it's nuanced, and I do think over a, a long enough timescale, you can make an argument. But it, but is it an inflation hedge, or is it actually uh, you're benefiting from more people speculating on the future of Bitcoin? So I do think that's a solid argument. I do think the inflation hedge is overstated a bit with Bitcoin.
0: I, I think so. So a hedge generally has a pretty specific aspect in that you want it to pay off at a specific time that you expect it to pay off uh and so that that's something like you know if you were to have options that that basically pay out if a certain tail risk happens like right say you want uh, if volatility of the markets go up you want these investments to give you a value then right you don't you don't want it to say pay back 6 months after that you don't want a probability that it pays off you want a near certainty that that's going to pay off uh in that event that you're hedging for uh, and so uh, in that sense, you know, Bitcoin is not a near-term inflation hedge in the sense that if you get, say, a CPI report that comes in hotter than, ex- you know, economists expected, right? And, and so inflation, actually, we have new information that, that inflation is higher than people thought. Uh, Bitcoin is not guaranteed to go up that day, for example. Mm-hmm. It could go down that day, could stay flat, could go up, who knows. Uh, and so Bitcoin is is not like that, that kind of tightly correlated anti-inflation hedge. Um, now, over a long enough timeline... Uh, basically, the idea is, is instead more about a harder form of money in the sense that, you know, the number of dollars goes up a lot quicker than the number of Bitcoin go up. And that is even more true when you look at certain emerging markets or cer- certain, you know, inflationary developing countries where the the time frame required is even shorter. Right. So if, if I'm comparing Bitcoin to dollars, there are periods of time where Bitcoin could underperform the dollar for, for say, two or three years potentially before eventually outpacing it. Whereas if you go the the, the more inflationary of a currency you go into, the tighter that gets. Where Bitcoin's better, you know, months later, weeks later, uh, let alone years later, uh, be, just because those currencies are losing their value so quickly. Uh, and so when you do think of it in a global context, uh, again, I would think of it more as a long-term store of value. If you were You know, it's kind—it's kind of combining that gold aspect of store value, but because it's a younger and more volatile and less certain asset, it has that kind of investment characteristic. So that's why I've actually—I've used when I describe this, I try to be specific and call it an emerging store value, in the sense that it's—it hasn't reached the level of like say proven store value that that gold historically had, but it's basically people are analyzing its qualities and seeing that it, it's got the properties of a store of value if it continues to be successful as they thought they were. And generally the, the more extreme use case you go into, like say Venezuela, the more like immediate of a store of value it becomes, whereas the more kind of sensible currency regime, the more it kind of instead it is best viewed as an emergent store of value as something that's being assessed as an investment for its network effect prop- properties uh, and for its credible uh, monetary supply.
1: Okay, your nuance is brilliant and it Uh, (laughs) made it much more sensible answer. Uh, And also, right now, I think somebody said the other day, um, uh, with regards to Lebanon, that Bitcoin has been a great store of value over the last couple of years. So I think that's a a really fair point. Um, We have actually drifted into the final section, which I should have said, which is, Comment for law versus regulations versus rules. I think the first one um, we can ignore. I, th- I can't remember if you said that at the start of the show before we started recording, but he talks about the fallacy of libertarianism. I just completely disregarded this. I was like, I, I don't, I didn't even understand why he brought this up. Um, I'm not a libertarian. I like a lot of lot of libertarian ideas, but um, I'm not a libertarian. And and as far as I know, uh, Bitcoin c- can be used by libertarians and communists and. Socialists and capitalists and right, left-wing centrists. It doesn't really matter. All Bitcoin has to do is produce blocks uh, every 10 minutes. So I thought that was a pointless thing to raise. Um, but also, so we, we covered the fallacy of safe haven one there. The, the fallacy of safe haven two here is with, uh, I can't remember which point it was. I might have these confused now, but... Um, it's where he talks about with regards to uh, Bitcoin being completely open and public and transparent and under authoritarian regimes, this has no benefit. And also because uh, the ledger is public and he referred to the uh, FBI and the um, recent hack of the, um, I can't remember, if it's the pipeline, I should have written it down. But but again, there were some key mistakes in here. Um, because firstly, in not understanding, uh, understanding the Lightning Network, he's missed out on the point that most transactions on the Lightning Network are, are relatively private. Uh, there's a difference between sender and receiver, but by missing out the Lightning Network, he's missed out that point. And the next thing I am just going to specifically quote Radley Rattler, um, because... All I would do otherwise is rewrite it and take credit, and I should just give him the credit. So the blockchain contains addresses and amounts, no real-world identity. Without KYC requirement, at some point, the blockchain doesn't provide any information on real-world identity, and Taleb doesn't give any evidence that it does. And then on the second point, with regards to the FBI, there's no such thing as accounts in Bitcoin. They're simply addresses, and the FBI didn't hack any of those. Rather, the FBI tracked the sending of Bitcoin across addresses, and at some point, uh, some of it ended up at a known address. The FBI approached the exchange that had the private keys to the address and asked for the Bitcoin at that address. It was given to them. They didn't hack it, and the pipeline hackers erred in sending Bitcoin to address to which they didn't have the private keys. So, firstly, I mean, how stupid were those hackers? Send it to an address, uh, but secondly, I'm surprised, I,
0: I, I'm surprised they did that. Yeah, they did send yeah. it to a, a you know their own hardware wallet.
1: That <laughs> was crazy. But again, it's just. Um, Again, he's just made the mistake of not understanding the Lightning Network and not understanding Bitcoin itself. And I felt it was either disingenuous or showed a lack of understanding.
0: One of the most interesting things is that the you know the estimated largest Bitcoin holder in the world, Satoshi, is unknown. Yeah. And it's because <laughs> those those coins were not KYC'd. And so Bitcoin, you know, in a in a vacuum is is private. But of course, because of all these KYC checkpoints combined with the fact that there's an open ledger that we can do analysis on. Uh, You know, basically we've we've radically reduced how private it is in practice for many people. But then of course, that's where you have this fact that developers are constantly working to make it better. And so you have upgrades like Taproot, you have Lightning uh, and these different things that that kind of push back on that. And so you have this kind of war between these entities that are, you know, using as much analysis as possible to make it transparent along with KYC regulations. And you have these developers pushing back to make it as private as possible. So we know that it's an imperfectly private system. Uh, when when you have certain kind of checkpoints that that have you know linked an identity to an address um now but his his overall point here is called um fallacy of safe haven to protection from tyrannical regimes the the problem that fails in is it's it's, it's demonstrably being used in a number of tyrannical <laughs> regimes or yep. Uh, even just broken regimes, inflationary regimes. Uh, and so, I, I mean, an example, I mean, you know, mainstream media has reported that, say, uh, Putin's opposition, uh, that, that, you know, uh, Nalvany, the, you know, the, the, the anti-corruption lawyer that, that's kind of been in the headlines a lot, his organization uh, accepts Bitcoin as payment because they often get their banking system, you know, they get blocked by the banking system. And so they've described Bitcoin as like their insurance. Like, so, you know, what, whatever else fails, they can still get payment in Bitcoin. Uh, and again, I'd I, I suggest anyone read Alex Gladstein's various pieces uh, that, that, you know, kind of he provides individual cases of people using Bitcoin uh, in their everyday life in, in some of these tyrannical regimes uh, basically as a way to custody value. And so, I mean, those regimes are not applying chain uh, like chain analysis to find out what's going on in that in that kind of setting. Right. The people that are just making use of these technologies are getting the benefits from it. And so we actually do have tangible use cases of people using Bitcoin against these sort of regimes. Another good example is Anita Posh has a whole section mm-hmm. of her podcast about Bitcoin in Africa. Uh, and kind of, you know, they're not always tyrannical regimes, but there are many, they're just troubled regimes. There's troubled areas that have currency failures or that that often do ha- have uh, tyranny. Uh, and Bitcoin is one of the, the powerful tools that they have, uh, you know, if they can get a, a cheap cell phone, if they can get you know, some sort of internet access, which increasingly the, the number of people that have that access keeps increasing over time. Uh, and that is a, a pretty powerful tool for people that are able to access it.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, yes, definitely. Alex Gladstein's, um, articles. I'll add a few in there. I mean, his recent Palestinian, uh, piece was 13,000 words. It's like a micro book, I'm still working my way through it. So, yes, please do go and check out Alex Glastine's points. Um, I'm not going to bother with the fallacy of the agency problem unless you did want to cover that yourself. It was his final point.
0: I mean, that's that's more about the fairness of distribution. Uh, and so unlike many other coins that were, say, pre-mined, uh, this one was distributed uh, basically as fairly as you can conceptualize in that instance, right? So anyone could mine it from the beginning, uh, and I mean, Dan Hell did a whole analysis on on how mm-hmm. it's pr- is pretty much if you kind of analyze even uh the the entities that are uh, assumed to belong to Satoshi and how he kind of throttled back his own mining over time, he basically only provided minimum securities t- to the network, right He, he mm-hmm. you know uh, and so over time, those coins were distributed pretty well. Uh, and so you know, it is natural that people who say I identify, a, a good investment or a good network or some sort of emergent theme before others, either through luck or skill or some combination, whatever the case may be in their specific instance, uh, you know, they, they do end up getting rewarded more than others uh, during that, that monetization process. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, you know, Bitcoin was designed uh, to be as open as possible and to be as fair as possible. And one thing I pointed out, I had a whole, you know, article that went into this um, and basically it's, it's kind of remarkable that he gave away the secret sauce before he launched it himself, right? So the white paper came out ahead of time and it was made public. And if you read the paper, it reads like an academic paper, right? So it's, it's just kind of this, it's written as though he's, he's, you know, in a university presenting this paper. And then when he's kind of discussing it with the, with the cryptographic emailing list, it's almost like a thesis defense that's kind of it's this very like adult discussion about some of the trade-offs he's made and this is all at that point you know fairly public Some of these people could have tried to steal the technology right and just kind of implement it before him even though he already of course had most of the work done behind the scenes but it actually wasn't out yet and then when he released the open source software uh, you know we have a tweet like a day later from like Hal Finney who's running Bitcoin right and so from there it was just this open thing that anyone could could do I mean I had a friend that was mining, bitcoin back in either 2010 or 2011 uh back when you could just do it if you had like a graphics card you could do it uh and so you know there were a lot of kind of tech savvy people that caught on to this uh but that doesn't mean that the actual underlying you know software is improper or that it has some other faults i mean that can open up questions down the line of you know wealth concentration that's that's a problem that the world's struggling with anyway uh, but that doesn't change the fact that bitcoin as a technology has been proven to be very good for some of these monetary qualities.
1: Yeah, I mean, the f- distribution is fair. I know the article you're referring to with Daniel. I'm trying to remember. It. It's, it's something, I think he literally t- titled it Bitcoin is Fair or Bitcoin's distribution was fair. I'll dig it out and I'll stick that in the show notes as well. I mean, I'm with you. I think the distribution was fair. Uh, I do think, though, as again, like there are fair questions to raise and debate. What does the concentration of Bitcoin wealth mean? You know, what does it mean for Michael Saylor to be in control of? winning every kind of 200 bitcoin what does that actually mean long term what position of power does that put him in or the the companies can, he controls in and that i don't know and that i don't
0: understand uh but that's well, a good think, thing it's not it's a good thing it's not proof of stake right because yeah. of proof of stake if, proof of stake coins right so if, if jeff bezos if, if we if, if we had a world where you get a vote for every dollar you have right jeff bezos would get you know 200 billion votes Whereas, like a you know, a science teacher might get twenty thousand votes, right? And so, basically, that that's how we, we would have constructed things. And so, if you have a consensus blockchain, uh, then basically, really large holders of those tokens are more rewarded. Whereas in Bitcoin, it's more about obviously, obviously you get rewarded in terms of wealth by having that amount, uh, but you don't necessarily have any more influence over the blockchain itself just because you have a large amount of the of the coins. Uh, Mm -hmm. and so that's actually a pretty important characteristic of bitcoin that separates it from another a a number of other projects uh and then in addition we saw you know on-chain analysis shows that during these various bullish cycles you do get a lot of those long-term holders selling uh you know their bitcoin uh into those strength right so when when someone bought bitcoin and then it goes up 10x that's often life-changing money for people and then they cash out, not knowing that if they hold it for another five years, it would have gone up another 20x. Um, and so there's actually, you know, there are a lot of crypto millionaires, um, but uh, it's, it's you know, there's fewer people than you think that just bought it for like a dollar and just never sold. Uh, and in fact, many of those that did lost their coins, right? Or it, it's estimated that there's a certain number of lost coins. And then you just generally have this distributive effect where people are happy because they made 5x or 10x on their money and then they cash out. Uh and so we, we and that's kind of you can look on chain and see those older addresses sell into those bull markets. Uh and so yes, I mean obviously if Bitcoin goes up 10x from here, there will be some very very wealthy people like say, you know, uh Sailor or the Winklevoss twins. I mean, they're already wealthy and they'll be even more wealthy. Um but that's, you know, that's that's true for any sort of other, you know, being early to some sort of emerging technology. Um, or founding your own company and basically having that be wildly successful.
1: So we have his conclusion, uh, my conclusion of his conclusion, and maybe your own conclusion. But uh, the main point I took from his conclusion is we only judge a technology by how it solves problems, not by what Techno- technological attributes it has, almost to d- dismiss it solving problems, which, again, is just completely disingenuous. He should certainly, just as a starting point, look at the work of uh, Alex Gladstein and what Alex has been doing, specifically with regards to activists. But Bitcoin has solved a, a number of problems. So I just felt that was like another kind of, maybe he believes it, but it's, it's another, uh, it was a false conclusion. Um, and so my conclusion it was really, it's like, I've come out of it different than I expected. I, I went into the prep for this, Lin, thinking, yeah, I'm going to try and t- tear this apart where I can and then let Lin do the, the rest of it. But actually, I came out of it thinking, isn't it a shame he doesn't engage intellectually and honestly with Bitcoiners? Because I actually think if he if he wasn't just dismissive for the sake of being dismissive and actually really credibly tried to create some uh, proper arguments against it, that would be for an interesting discussion. I would like nothing more to watch Lin Alden debate uh, 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 Nassim Taleb on Bitcoin or saifuddin s- debate him and and actually go through these key issues. Because I think it's good to come and criticize Bitcoin. I have a lot of people ask me, you know, emails come in, people say, yeah, you do all these bullish shows, but can we have uh, can we have more critical shows? And so actually, I came out of it just disappointed and kind of hopeful that he would engage at some point in a more fair and honest debate about Bitcoin. And I will just close before I let you close. And I've mentioned Bradley Rettler a few times. He raised four points of discussion. Maybe you and I can attack this at some point with Bradley. But he said, uh, these are fair points of discussion. Can Bitcoin succeed without being a unit of account? I think that's a fair question. Can Bitcoin succeed as an inflation hedge or tail risk hedge? How are people using Bitcoin in tyrannical regimes and can we make Bitcoin better for such people? And if Bitcoin is a great technology, what other features makes it such? Um, so I all, think, I all think they're good points, but um, you may have your own kind of conclusion.
0: I think you summarized it really well. Uh, and so I would say as an investor, you know, the reason I invested in Bitcoin is because I analyzed it as having good properties for solving problems. Uh, and so I'm not someone who runs a Bitcoin-based business, right? I'm not just like permanently tied to Bitcoin. I constantly assess it and say, no, but yep, it's still solving its problems. And so uh, I continually kind of, like any investment, I always refresh my view of, of what are the probabilities of, of their long, long-term long success. Uh, and so Bitcoin is doing very well in terms of, you know, basically solving real-world problems Uh, And so because it's still early on its phase, still it's used for, you know, by a small percentage of the world population, those have so far still been niche problems. But the interesting thing is actually the problems that they're solving are quite big. It's just they haven't caught on yet enough to, to be, you know, used at a very huge scale. We are starting to see it kind of like a virus kind of spread and start solving these problems in certain areas that can then spread to other areas. And so whether or not you you can see, for example, Strike just applying it to try to reduce remittance fees, uh, or you see, uh, say, Alex Gladstein use it for human rights applications, or you see people just decide to use it as a self-custodied emergent store of value uh, that, you know, they're willing to accept that volatility in exchange for viewing it as a better long-term store of value than, than say, a fiat currency. And of course, that, that has, you know, more in more extreme currency environments that's a that's a more immediate payoff than someone in a more stable currency environment they're making a longer term outlook there Uh, and so i would say you basically i do view bitcoin as solving problems and you know it it, that's what the market's kind of currently assessing as it prices bitcoin is that it's constantly pricing on this probability curve of of how you know any sort of critical failure that it might have versus any sort of, you know, critical success it might have versus uh, kind of a big range of middle outcomes. Uh, and so uh, I do think it's it's really good to have criticisms of, a, of Bitcoin. Uh, and so, you know, I do think that we have to discuss all the potential weaknesses there, right? So for example, I had a whole article, again, dedicated to Bitcoin's transition towards a fee-based model, uh, because, you know, I do view that as one of the, the, the credible risks that, you know, uh, a blockchain has to be above a certain minimum threshold for for kind of, you know, especially as the block subsidies go down, it, in order to have minimum security and usability, it has to be above a certain, certain threshold. We don't know roughly where that threshold is, so that article kind of explores that concept. And so there are credible risks to Bitcoin that I think have to be addressed, uh, let alone, I mean, just basically even if just it means that developers are aware of them and can work on them ahead of time. Uh, or that, you know, people that the users know that there are certain risks and that, so that can determine, say, how much of your net worth you put in Bitcoin or the things that you'll focus on when you're trying to make Bitcoin better. And you're trying to defend it against attacks to know what are the what are the kind of weaknesses to either mitigate uh, or to, uh, you know, improve over time.
1: Brilliant. Well, you crushed it as ever. That was amazing. We uh, we've gone a little bit over our normal allotted time. Um I really enjoyed this i got a lot from it and um listen i won't tell you to repeat your twitter or your uh, email everyone knows it now if uh if you don't go into the show notes i do recommend you sign up to lynn's email it's remind me is it like 199 dollars a year or 200
0: uh yeah it's 109 down a year but also i have that free newsletter that comes out every six weeks and a no. lot of public articles so i, I would no, say just check out that. the free stuff first
1: stop being a cheapskate buy it it's two hundred dollars a year like a year it's literally nothing and it's unbelievable it comes in every month and i'm glued to it so go and don't be a cheapskate go and buy lynn's uh two hundred dollars a month two hundred dollars a year newsletter that's a uh, high value for money i'd probably pay that a month by the way if if you were ever interested in repricing i probably would you so you should uh you may want to think about that but listen lynn this was amazing Uh, I always appreciate talking to you and I appreciate your help with this and have a great month and I will see you in August.
0: Yep. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, we'll see, uh, you know, hopefully this this helped uh, people kind of clarify this. As you point out, there are already a lot of people that kind of dissected the paper. uh, So hopefully we added something to the discussion uh, and made that maybe more accessible to people.
1: I hope so. All right. Thank you, Lynn. All right. What did you think of that one? Lynn was incredible as ever. But the thing that I find most disappointing about Taleb's stance on Bitcoin is that I just wish he would open up to Bitcoiners. I think if he saw some of the work that Jack Mallers is doing with Strike, what's happening in El Salvador, or what Alex Gladstein is doing with the Human Rights Foundation, I think it would change his minds on some of this stuff. And do you know what? The paper would be much more useful if it was a fair critique. You know, if he explained the different trade-offs between, say, Bitcoin and gold, rather than just making claims which aren't true at all, or missing important parts of the Bitcoin network, for example. I mean, the Lightning Network. It's just very strange that he didn't mention the Lightning Network once. But maybe not. Maybe he is just entrenched in his opinions, and unwilling to change. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you want to read any of the articles we cited, then please do head over to whatbitcoindid.com and check out the show notes. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, you can jump into my Telegram channel, or you can hit me up my email, which is hello at com lastly if you're a regular listener of the show and you've never left me a review on apple Podcasts, what are you doing come on i ask this every week maybe you don't even listen this far but if you do if you are a listener and you want to support the show please do head over to apple Podcasts and leave me a review it really does help with the listings okay it's wednesday morning i'm going to catch up on with the olympics i hope you're all doing well and i will see you all on friday